You are listening to The Private Citizen, your weekly data privacy podcast. This is episode 20 for Wednesday, the 20th of May, 2020. A lot of 20s this time. <laughs> the episode title is The Happy Plumbers Who Know Everything About You. Hello, my name is Fab and I am, as usual, your host for this podcast. I am coming to you from Duisburg, Germany once again my parents place uh yeah where we uh we are we got some of our freedoms back uh mutti merkel gave us some of our some of our freedoms back and we're very happy about that and i need a beer but today we're not going to talk about coronavirus um maybe tangentially but this episode is about something completely different this episode is about a company called plaid And if you haven't heard that name before, at least not as in in a company, then you're 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 not alone. Um, there are many people who don't know about this, which I think why it's a it's a great topic. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that um, topic today is uh, mobile payments and you know the companies behind the scenes that collect your data and you know why that is bad and how this all. Uh, place together and um, it's probably the first episode of um, what might become a minor sub theme in the podcast I hinted at this at the past um, I've been meaning to do this episode for a while um, I hinted in, in the past that I want to talk about the war on cash and this is this is part of it this is um, part of this uh, whole thing that is developing basically where people don't want you to to play with cash anymore they want you to play pay digitally and today we're gonna find out why that is yeah and uh why not let's get let's get straight um into this topic oh uh before yeah before we start off i would like to mention that this is initially once again um one of the topics where it it sounds like it only affects uh, people from the US this is a company in the US it's currently um doing business mostly in the US and it's um you know as a european you'll you listen to this and you're like you might it might get dangerous uh, that you you kind of like tuning out um and you're you're thinking well this doesn't affect me but as i mentioned before on the show um, I cover so many uh, U.S. topics, not only because I have many U.S. listeners, it's also because the U.S. seems to be at the forefront with these things. And things that happen in the U.S. sooner or later come to you know all of our local uh, countries and jurisdictions. And uh, sooner or later, they'll, they'll try to do the same thing uh, where you are, uh, where I am. And so it's, it's kind of it makes sense to be ahead. And, and to be vigilant and to see what's going on. Maybe we can we can also stop some of this. And, you know, when we're talking about Plaid, they, um, they are a US company, but they do have um, company locations in Canada, in the UK, in France, in Spain, in Ireland, and, and the Netherlands. And that tells you uh, that definitely Canada and Europe are two focuses of their business and probably where they're looking to expand. Um, yeah, and then and, and another mention, of course, uh, as always, uh, the website for this podcast is privatecitizen.press, where you will find the show notes for this episode, episode 20, uh, where you will find all the information I talk about and all the links and everything. So with that, let's get into our first topic here, um, 
by the way, if you're hearing something in the background, that is uh, the road. Um, <laughs> my parents uh, live on a somewhat uh, busy road, so and their their sound in- insulation is not as good as, as in my flat, so you might hear some of that, and it probably sounds different because I'm, I'm on the road and I'm, you know, I'm using a bit of a simpler setup. But anyway, let's let's. I'm, I'm, I'm waffling. Let's get into the topic. So what's Plaid? Plaid is a uh, relatively unknown, I would say, financial services company. I'd never heard of them. Um, and Forbes wrote an article about them in 2018, which I've, of course, linked in the show notes, uh, where they call them fintech's happy plumbers. Sounds great, doesn't it? And, you know, I talk about this company. And um, originally, there are two founders, and originally, they wanted to create a uh, financial planning app, and they needed a way to um, figure out how to to link that to their users' bank account. As this Forbes story says, many businesses still depended on one penny. You probably you've probably used used this in the past uh, on one penny microtransactions to verify customer bank accounts others uploaded pdfs of paper statements oh can't do that in europe that's horrible <laughs> and especially not with gdpr yeah. <laughs> and typed uh, typed in the data manually well you can probably do it but it's a major headache uh, parrot and hockey these are the two founders sought to create an application programming interface or api to perform the same function with only a bank customer's online username and password um, so, well, that sounds that's kind of interesting. So their app failed, uh, their financial planning app failed. But uh, as startups do, they pivoted to selling this login system with they had, which they had developed um, as a service. So they established Plaid in New York in 2012. And one of their first customers, they had a bit of luck. Um, so they st- um, stuck up a, a relationship with Venmo, which if you're in the US, you've, you've heard. So many people use it's a if you're not in the US you never heard of it it's a so from a European perspective this is bonkers it's a payment service a mobile payment service that are very you know frictionless as they say um ah kind of like you know the PayPal app or whatever but it's like a social network and it you know you can it's like oh Pete has paid uh John for a pizza <laughs> uh Tanya has paid her rent to James. It's like this kind of you have a stream, like with your public stream with your payments. It's it's very. It's it, yeah, when I first heard about that, I was like, why? Why would you do that? But uh, I don't know. And in, in the US, they're more um, more fast and loose with this kind of data, I guess. Um, anyway, so Venmo, they. Um, um, as as the story says, um, this uh, this Forbes story, uh, Venmo's engineering chief was in the process of cutting the cost of a peer-to-peer money tra- transfer for making payments. The solution was settling transaction in big batches. While Venmo customers would in- transact instantly, the actual payment was delayed a day. So it kind of you know because it did Venmo was. I don't know if people use it for all kinds of stuff now, but it originally it was like for little payments. And because there's obviously fee tra- uh, um, connected to that, it would be like, it would like buffer your, you know, you'd get your money me- immediately. 
um, but the bank transfers in the bank would buffer like your payments for a day, so you you know they could transfer more money, so it would make more sense. So um, the actual payment was delayed a day. Uh, Plaid helped remove the risk. Ven- Venmo would keep in real time. Uh, Venmo would know in real time that the sender had a sufficient bank balance. Venmo's validation helped the startup take off, among other fintech customers that were looking to emulate Venmo's success. Uh, some now well-known apps would sign up months before they became household names. So this is, you can see, this is when um, when Plaid took off. Already, if you if you have, like me, fine-tuned antennas for how apps work and privacy issues, this sentence I just read, uh, there, there would alarm bells are probably going off in your head, and you wouldn't be wrong because we, we, we're getting into that. But... Um, Let's let's just quickly go go on. You know, we'll we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, the story um, summarizes uh, today. Plaid's reach extends across tens of millions of end users and thousands of apps. And this is 2018, even bigger now, which ac- which accounts for hundreds of billions in spending and financial planning. The company's revenue was 40 million dollars last year, according to Forbes estimate, and its cash flow is close to break even. Now, that's that's plaid. That's how they how they came to be. You know, hip startup from New York. They have like a climbing uh, escalator in their office, and if you work there, you need to sign like a waiver that you won't sue the company if you fall off the wall. And that's because the founder met when they were climbing, and one of them dropped the other one fifteen meters, and it's all great, you know. And they they were building a company, and one was sleeping on his couch. Typical, you know, American dream, U.S. Uh, startup success story. But, yeah, that's all great. You know, that's the original Forbes story. Now, despite that, people didn't really have, you know, not many people read that, I guess. Um, One um, company or, or representatives of the company must have read that story because on January the 13th, uh, 2020, this year, so 13th of January 2020, uh, Plaid was acquired by Visa for 5.3 billion US dollars. And this begs the question, why is Plaid worth 5.3 billion US dollars? Um, because m- most people have never heard of this company. Like, how can they possibly be worth that much? Um, that is because many people in the US actively use their services. Um, so I am now quoting from a story. So when when they were acquired, this is another Forbes story. But when they were acquired by Visa, suddenly a lot of people, because you know, five billion dollars, a lot of people were suddenly, oh, who's this company? And looked into it, and then people started to realize there's privacy issues here. So um, this is another Forbes story. Um, so this is um, shortly after they were acquired. On January the 13th, all major news outlets reported that Visa would pay 5.3 billion US dollars to purchase a fintech company named Plaid, a company that most consumers have never even heard of. How come a consumer-focused financial company that consumers have never heard of, how, how can a consumer-focused financial company that most consumers have never heard of be worth so much? Without realizing it, many of us, and this is of course a US publication, uh, many of us actually have used uh, Plaid services. After all, Plaid is one of the biggest U.S. data aggregators. Unbeknownst to most customers in recent years, Plaid has become a key financial industry player. Sorry, 
have to read that out again. Unbeknownst to most customers in recent years, there's a comma missing. Oh, I hate when they do that. Plate, uh, Plat has become a key f- financial history player. Financial industry. What? Jeez, sorry. <laughs> I need another. I've been working all day today. I've been reading source code half the day. So uh, please, ex- please excuse me scrambling any sentences. And there's commas missing. is even worse. Anyway, let's, let's start this over. Unbeknownst to most consumers in recent years, Platt has become a key financial industry player using its screen scraping technology. <laughs> alerts go off. And a- API software to enable startups apps to get data which they need in order to successfully operate from our bank accounts. Plaid services are ubiquitous. They are used by fintech companies such as Venmo, mobile investing app Robinhood, and cryptocurrency exchanges Coinbase and Gemini. But Plaid is much more than than an enabling tech company. Serving as an intermediary between fintech startups and banks, Plaid is a gatekeeper to consumer financial data, and its services are critical to fintech companies. Fintech companies do not bypass companies companies like Plaid because it is too challenging, costly and time-consuming for them to connect uh, to customer accounts in thousands of different U.S. banks. I think somebody estimated that Plaid has connections to about 10,000 banks in the U.S. Um, because they have all these little banks over there, I guess. Um, all these co-ops or whatever. This little, it's kind of like a Sparkasse would be in Germany, I guess. Uh, according, accordingly, they interact with only a few data aggregators like Plaid and have them do that work for them. So this is why this company was founded, right? These founders, when they were making their app, figured out it's really hard to do. Like if you make an app that all um, that a general consumer um, would use to analyze their uh, how much they're spending, their fin- you know, their, their financials, then that app needs to connect to their bank account. But there's 10,000 banks in the US. So you have all these different systems. Some of them have APIs, but most of them, you know, had only like, okay, you pay us uh, this cent, like these systems they built where, you know, you you um, transfer some 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 amount of small money and then they figure out that you actually sent that and then they can verify you're connected to that. But that's different for every bank. So when they made their app, they were like, this is really hard. And they built this backend to make that easier. And now they're selling that. You know, They're not doing their financial app anymore because this backend is, is much more important. Now the question is, how do you know companies and like Plaid and Plaid especially get access to this banking data? How do they get access to the accounts? And especially, how do they do that if most people never actually given them their data because they don't even know, you know, these consumers don't even know Plaid exists. How do they get, how does Plaid get access to their bank account? Well, um, to quoting further from this story, to fill their role as this necessary intermediary, data aggregators, we're talking Plaid here, they're they're the big name, uh, first need to gain access to consumer financial information that is kept at the banks. This happens when we download and sign up for a fintech app on our smartphones, and the app requires that we enter our bank account login and password information. Now, I personally have never done this. Um, there is like this bill payment service in Germany for the longest time where they they want your bank username and password, 
And I would never, because, you know, I'm an infosecurity, uh, infosec uh, journalist, right? I write about IT security every day. I would never give an app my bank account details. Because at that point, the bank doesn't know, like, the app can go and impersonate you. They have the same access as you. The bank doesn't know that it's not you. And, I, you know, I'm obviously I'm not a legal expert. Um, and and your mileage may, may vary by a lot in your respective um jurisdiction but in germany you're pre you're protected from a lot like if um i mean this is changing uh, one of the factors is this whole fintech stuff but generally it would be like this if you have a, if you have an account with the bank and somebody breaks into that and steals all your money generally the bank would have to give you that money back mostly no questions asked and usually it would be um The bank, like, as I said, this is changing now, which is which is a problem in itself, but it's not really a topic for a privacy podcast. Um, but it, it would be that that the bank, if if they if they were like somebody broke in into your account because you did something wrong, they'd have to prove that you like did something really wrong, right? That, that you. Um, that somebody sent you an email and said, oh, "Hey, give me your bank account details, like a phishing email," and you gave them your your bank account details. At that point, the bank could go, "Well, you've um, in German in German we call that fahrlässig. Uh, you've you've acted." Um, I don't have to to look this up now. I'm sorry. I, if you hear me, like if you hear that, it's like it's a very I'm in a very tight space. <laughs> uh, fahrlässig wanted to look up what that is um, in English. Negligent? Yeah, I guess it would be in law. It would, it would be negligent. So if they can prove you acted negligent, then you would, you know, they would not have to give you your money back. But like, if it's a, so as I said, this is changing, but I still think it's still the case if, like if they send you a phishing mail and, and it's like conceivable that you, you would think that was your bank, then that wouldn't even count. Um, then that would be like, well, you know, the consumer is not tech savvy. They have no way to f to see that this isn't actually the bank. You know, obviously this would be uh, probably be be debated in court. But you know, um, but like if you do this, if I give some random company my account data and they screw me over and, and get all my, the money from my account, then and then I can't. That's negligent, right? I just gave some company my 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 account did i would i would never do that um but apparently a lot of people do even in germany like a lot of people do that uh for this for the service i mentioned and of course obviously here for these fintech apps especially in the us people are doing that so um um as as the story says um the 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 fintech app requires that we enter our bank account login and password information. We're providing our bank account login and password to a data aggregator who uses credentials to access the information and provide services to the fintech startup uh, to the fintech app we're using. Frequently data aggregators store the login credentials and then use the credentials to persistently log into the consumer's bank accounts and copy all the data ranging from transaction information to account numbers to personal identifiable data. The aggregators then attempt to put that financial information about each consumer's under one roof, the consumer's dashboard that most of these fintech apps do. 
which can exhibit one's investment savings, insurance policies, credit balances, tax planning, budgeting, and even data on home value and mortgage. Historically, our consumer data was jealously protected by the highly regulated banks. However, online shopping using confidential financial account credentials and downloading personal finance apps on our smartphones have changed that. Understanding the importance of such data, many believe that consumers' ability to control their data has become a modern imperative. That notion is tightly linked to the concept of open banking, an initiative that lets consumers control and share their banking financial data. But with no regulation or adapted standards of ethical gathering and use of data, consumers' privacy and their account safety are jeopardized. In the EU, the legal status of third parties' rights to access consumers' financial data is anchored in the new Payment Services Directive 2, but that is not the case in the US. The American approach to open banking has been a market-based one, in which, without consumers noticing data aggregators have become a significant player so the big difference here between the us and the eu is we actually have this in the eu this payment services directive which most people that came into effect last year uh, most people noticed because um, they made it mandatory for two-factor authentic authentication for many things especially if you so for the longest time you didn't have two-factor authentication when you logged into your bank account you just had the username and password uh, this Uh, this law re actually requires all significant financial inf uh, financial um, transactions to be secured by two-factor authentication, which actually forced a lot of banks to to start using two-factor authentication. Um, so most most people in Europe will will or in Germany, for example, will know uh, this law from that. But this law also standardized APIs for fintechs, so it standardized ways that If I have a bank account and if I use a, a fintech app, then I can. There's a way which is it's a, in 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 practice. I've never done it, but from what I've read, it works a, li a little bit like Open ID. You kind of log into your bank uh, on your computer. You log into your bank online, online banking thing, and then you tell the app tell them i want to use this app right you 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 authorize that app and you can pull that authorization and this this sidesteps this problem they have in the us where you don't have to give that startup your your, your bank logins now the us has never done this so they now have this problem generally i think it's pretty cool that we have that law in the in the eu that will prevent a lot of what I'm going to talk about, like with Plaid and services like this, having your credentials. But the general problem remains. I'm going to go back onto that at the end of the podcast a little bit and talk about the fact that um, the whole war on cash and all of this and the fact that just this transaction data is worth a, worth a lot. And in the EU, it's worth the same. So it doesn't really matter how the these fintech apps get access to your bank account right it's, it's better the way it is in the eu where it's regulated and there's like apis and they have specs and you know you did that can be tested and, and stuff like that and also it's more fine-grained access control it's a bit more like you know um, like open id or like apps you know when you I don't know when you when you uh, when you use GitHub, right? And you have a service that interacts with your GitHub account or with Twitter. Then you have special ability, like you, you can give granular um, uh, permissions. You could say, well, you can you can read my balance, but you can't read 
or you you could read the amounts of money that goes in and comes out but you can't read the um you know where i paid it or you know the the description of it or something like that so that's generally better but i still think the problem with these apps and the fact that which i'm going to talk about in a bit that like this information is so um so so valuable is a problem we have in the eu as well it's just the access is regulated better but still you know they, they will try to get us to use apps and give them these permissions um, it's kind of like mm, when mobile operating systems created the system where you uh, had to have to start give um, apps granular permissions to like take pictures or use the microphone that's generally more secure but it just leads to every app asking you for a lot of permissions and then you just you know yeah you go yeah, yeah I just give I don't think about it anymore and then then you have the same problem. So we, I think we need to be vigilant about that too. But, you know, the, the question still remains, why is all this worth billions to Visa? Um, so uh, here's a uh, blog post from from a guy um, who works in the industry who uh, does these kind of payment uh, background uh, processing things and who sums it up quite well um, when, when, when Visa bought Plaid uh, he wrote this. In screen scraping, I ask the consumer for credentials, log in on behalf of them, and extract the contents of the HTML. In this process, Plaid most likely obtains explicit consumer permissions to use the data. This is perhaps their biggest asset. As most consumer banks usually maintain permission within a defined set of banking services. Thus, Plaid's API, uh, APIs are used are used by apps or permission data users to query against this warehouse or request real-time updates from screenscape scraping. So Plaid not only has this data in the process of acquiring of you know of, of getting this permission from the user. So you download Robinhood, right? And Robinhood asks you, hey, can I connect to your bank account? And you enter your bank account details. And in the background, you're actually giving your bank account details to Plaid, and there's all terms of services and everything is explained, but you don't read that, right? You don't even, you don't know. It. I mean, you're a normal human being. You just want to use that app. Maybe you just want to try it out. You don't want to read any uh, terms of services and stuff like that. And they acquire this permission, and now they can read all the banking data. Now, there has to be a huge alarm bell has to go off because they keep talking about screen scraping. And if you, if you know anything about IT security, you're like, what? They do what? They do screenscaping? And yeah, that's that's what they do. So the I actually buried the lead here a little bit, as they say in, in, in journalism parlance, because, um, I mean, you, you could think about a company that provides the service whatever you want. They provide a valid service. They provide a valid service to developers, Um you know, who develop apps that provide a valid, serv a valid service to you as a user because it makes it a lot easier to log into, um, you know, to to, to give a, an app that you want to use this access. And it's valuable for banks who in the US are not forced by law to develop APIs. So, you know, if something like that doesn't happen, if there's no law and no, no, no legislation about this, that will, that, you know, if, you, if you've been around tech, long enough, you know that there will never be a standardized API. So it's cool for banks as well. But 
like I don't know. I th- I think they're they're kind of a bad actor because but what they're basically doing is so in the process of using an app, you give Plaid your banking credentials, and then they turn around and log into your bank's online banking, um, either the website directly and then do screen scraping or via an API, and yeah, they log in in there for you. The thing is, they can do that whenever they want, right? Because your bank can't tell that it isn't you. You are, auth- you know, you um, authenticate yourself against your bank if you don't use two-factor like you would in the EU now uh, with the username and password. And when somebody has that username and password, for all intents and purposes, they are you. And actually, if you read into this, Plant actually does things because banks don't want their online portals to be scraped. They do this stuff, and you can do this. I mean, there's technology for this, where you actually emulate a user. Um, if you actually looked into, um, you know, they, in the past there's always been scams where people try to scam, like, you know, advertising. Um, basically, they um, they place ads on a website, and then emulate with scripts actual users, you know, clicking on the page, clicking on the ads, and then you know, getting the money. Uh, you know, the, the 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 website that has the ads placed on it will get money because you know, it looks like to the to the advertising provider, it looks like they are provide. You know, they have eyeballs looking at these ads and people clicking on them. So there's there's lots of technologies for this. Um, you can do this in many ways: emulate users, clicks, and stuff like that. And Plaid apparently does that, and that is just not like it's bad enough to <laughs> it's bad enough to actually get your bank account credentials, but then they're doing like shady, shady like screen scraping stuff. I mean, this is. If you know that they now have APIs or this kind of stuff in Europe, you're like, this is the worst thing. You can- <laughs> this is the worst way you could do about this. Of course, you know, in everybody's defense, I'm not saying I- I- I'm I'm firmly in the camp who thinks you should never do this. If you need to do screen scraping for anything like this, something's wrong. Like you shouldn't do. You should provide that service you're providing. Like something needs to change. That's just an hack. That's an ugly hack. You should never be. Able- you should never do that. Um, but. The argument, I guess, would be that you know, by when 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 Plaid came up, like this, we're talking 2012, 2013, and they probably developed this technology even earlier. You know, they, in the EU, you couldn't do that. You know, there was well, you could you could only do the same thing. That you couldn't you couldn't use APIs. These APIs in the EU uh, just came into being because they were mandated by law, and that was 2019. So it's always like ten, almost ten years later. So you can see this normal pattern where like the US is always ahead with these things because they're just loosey goosey with this and just do implement shit like screen scraping and then in the EU we actually know uh we actually like oh this is like a pre- <laughs> this is a privacy nightmare this is like private data we need to worry about how people access this we need to worry about how it's stored blah 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 and i guess you could say a good and bad thing about thing about both approaches but 
I think this is horrible. And I think people in the US also know this is horrible because Plaid is now, you know, with the visa acquisition, people actually started paying attention to the company. There was some reporting on it. I mean, they were doing this for years behind everybody's back. Nobody knew that this was going on. There were millions of people using apps, using this backend service, didn't know that they were using this. And this is why Plaid's being sued now. So there is now a case... Uh, called Cottle et al. versus Platt uh, uh, at the United States District Court for the Northern District of California. It's a class action lawsuit. Um, and let me just read from a news story about this uh, on Bloomberg Law. Platt software is used by more than 2,000 apps to link consumer financial accounts. And about one in four people in the US have an account linked via Platt, the suit says. Platt uses that access to deceptively obtain bank account information from users, accessing information back up to five years, averaging 3,700 transactions per consumer, the suit says. So just, you know, that amount, 3,700 transactions per consumer is the average. Just imagine that amount of data. And before we go further into this, I mean, I've done many episodes or several episodes now on on location data and how highly um, sensitive and private that data is. Financial data is probably even worse. I mean, this is your whole life, right? If this is, if they, if you have one bank account and you do, it's everything you do, everything you put on paying cash, they know everything. They know where you eat, where you, where you go to the pub. They know what you're shopping. They know everything. I mean, they get, they get the, they know actually what you're buying most likely. It's incredible sensitive information. I mean, there's there's no there's a good reason why you know uh, when when they let's say the police is looking for somebody like a, a murder suspect or whatever, or whatever you know, and they they're on the run, and if they can get access to their like their bank data. They can track him down, right? They know everything. They know, oh, he just filled up with gas at this petrol station. We know where he is. <laughs> you know, we know what he's doing. Um, so, um, 3,700 transactions per consumer. The app also allegedly gathers information on accounts maintained for others, such as relatives and children, and has amassed data from over 200 million distinct financial accounts. 200 million accounts. The suit filed Monday. Well, I don't know. It's just God, now I have to look up when this story is. Where did I leave that in? <laughs> it wasn't this Monday. Uh, so this is a uh, story from May the 5th. Um, the suit alleges that when a user enters their bank login information on an app that uses Plaid, the credentials, including security layers such as security questions and answers and one-time passwords, are transmitted directly to Plaid. So if you actually have one fact, uh, two-factor authentication, they actually do man-in-the-middle that to get into the account. What they are doing is basically what a scam site would do if they want to harvest your account. They're using the same exact... <sighs> techniques um so uh, uh, once again the credentials including security layers 
such, such as security questions and answers, and one-time passwords are transmitted directly to Plaid rather than to the bank. Plaid then uses that information to access the consumer's bank account multiple times a day, gathering private information and selling it, the suit says. A login screen with your bank's branding is actually controlled by and connected to Plaid, the suit says, which uses bank logos to provide a false sense of comfort for users. Additionally, the privacy policy is not meaningful, meaningfully presented to users, the, the suit claims. And this is like they have, if you look into that document, I put a, they put the link, uh, the, just the whole suit is uh, in the show notes. They have stuff, you know, they have the co-founder on, on Hacker News. Basically, somebody's like, oh, well, they basically have access to all your banking information and he's like misdirecting. So they're giving their best to not have that come out. Um, you know, they never, they never lie. Uh, as far as one, you know, you can tell from these like documents, then they don't, they don't. No, we're not. We're not harvesting this information. They always misdirect, right? They're like, hey, this. So you're using Robinhood to log in, and the guys asking about like, does Play Play Plaid have your banking information, or do they harvest data? And then the the representative from Plaid will talk about how Robinhood or Robinhood or whatever they call it, uh, how they are harvesting your data, right? They oh, it's true. They're also harvesting your data, but Plaid is as well. Um, and now we get, of course, uh, we get the response from Platt. Quote, Platt disputes these baseless allegations. That is like something. That's like, what, what was his name? Baghdad Ali or whatever. <laughs> they're, they're absolutely no American tanks in Baghdad. Baseless allegations. <laughs> Platt disputes these baseless allegations and plans to vigorously defend itself against the lawsuit. Yeah, I'm sure. According to a company statement, Platt firmly believes that consumers should have permission-based access to and control over their financial data and embodies these principles in our practices. To be clear, Platt does not obtain consumers' personal information without their consent, nor does Platt sell or rent consumers' personal information. Um... I'm pretty sure they announced that they're doing this in the terms of service, right? But I would say, if we're having a reasonable argument, the fact that probably the majority of your customers don't even know they use your service would maybe imply that they haven't read the terms of service. Just guessing. So, you know, I'm not a legal expert, so I don't know how, how, how much merit this uh, suit has. But it sounds like they have at least have a good argument. Um, and of course, this they're saying we, we <laughs> they do not sell or rent consumers' personal information. Mm. I'm pretty sure they're saying that um, because they're talking about like, I'll, I'll get into this uh, in a bit, but basically there's this practice where you uh, pseudonymize uh, information and then it's not connected to your name and then so I guess they can say well, that's not personal, personal identifiable information because it's been anonymized now we'll figure out um, as always I mean if you listen to this podcast you know what's coming you can figure out it's like location data there's no there, like if you have enough there's certain amounts of data where even if you 
redact things and you anonymize it, the the shape of the data, I would almost say, basically, if you have enough of it, leads you to this, you, you are able with, other, it's always with other sources, but there's other sources on the internet. Just basically, if you have enough data and you have the internet and you can put the two together, you can figure out who the person is. So this is very often a red herring. But I think it is it is clear from this alone. I mean, if you now know, um, I think if you're listening to this podcast and you know you, you've now heard what they do with the cre- screenscape scraping and all that, you, I think you wouldn't use this use this service. Now the problem is um, this is of course a bit insidious because a lot of people don't know they're using it. Right? They they're a backend service for many, many, many other apps. And you'd, you'd have to research if that other app you're using is using Plaid. Um, but that's maybe something, you know, um, as I always say, I, 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 I welcome input on my topics here. Contact details is always private citizen.press. Uh, there's on there in, in the show notes and in the footer, there's a link to um, how you can contact me. And it like if if you want if you want to start a discussion and if you want to talk about what apps are using that if you if you have some some insight on that if we use Plaid or similar services I'm happy I'm happy to um, to talk to you about it I'm happy to uh, talk about it on this show um, maybe in a future episode maybe in the feedback section I think that is that is very valuable but. I think we know no that we don't want to. I mean, at least I, I can't, you know, I can't speak for you, but I, I, I wouldn't want to use a service that that uses this in the back end. Now, I think this whole thing is is part of a a wider phenomenon that I, I you know, I haven't coined this, but I like to call the war on cash, which is a bit bit tongue in cheek because I've I've always uh, chafed at the war on terror, and I've always said, you know. You can't you can't uh, make war on an abstract concept, although money itself is not so much of an abstract concept. But you know what I mean. But I'm I'm kind of using it because it's uh, it rolls off the tongue, and I think it's a it's a trend that I'm. I think all of us like if you walk around the world with open eyes, you cannot help notice that everybody, especially in these times, TM. <laughs> You know, in the in the coronavirus crisis, or as I like to call it, the madness, um, the brain virus. Nobody, everybody wants you to pay digitally. Um, currently, it's like, oh, because cash transmits viruses, disease, which is bullshit. Well, I mean, there's there's bacteria on there, but it's it's, it's pretty good. Um, research on that that's the um you know this this there's good indication that that's not the transmission vector for a for sars uh, cov2 but you know it's just people you know oh pay by pay contactless pay contactless so much easier so much better you can analyze all this and all that um and have you ever wondered why why everybody pushes you that way i have and maybe i'm I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist, I, but I'm, I don't think 
I don't think this is it's one of these things like when you say conspiracy theorists when you say this is a conspiracy I don't think this is a conspiracy this is not like the banking industry getting together ha we should get them to use digital payments only it's so much better for us you know this is not how it works um, people notice that there is money in something and in this case it's data it's your as always <laughs> You know, data is the new oil or whatever they say. It's 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 always data, and in this in this case, it's financial data. And people discovered, shock horror, that you know, financial data. So data data about how people spend money is worth something. It's worth quite a lot. It's probably worth more than you know the the way you're surfing and all of that. You know that we know that that you know the advertising uh, industry wants that information, um, and. People have just figured that out, and and so banks have figured that out, and and other companies, you know, I mean, the banks want you to do to, to use digital uh, payment methods because it's easier for them and they can track everything. The payment providers want that because they want you know they can track that. The um, you know your supermarket if it's a big oh sorry I dropped. I dropped the money of the future. I dropped the bottle cap. That was a fallout reference. <laughs> um, you know, if there's a big supermarket chain, you know, Walmart, Costco, Aldi in Germany, um, they, if you pay with a payment card, they can track, if you pay with cash, they don't, you know, you pay with cash today and then you pay tomorrow and they can't connect those two instances. When you pay with the same debit card or credit card, they can connect that. And they have, of course, they have, you know, cash registers. They track everything. And they know what you buy. And then they, they see, oh, this is Fab. You know, they don't know my name is Fab because they can't read that out of the card. But they know that this payment method, this card, this this guy or gal, and they can probably figure out I'm a guy because maybe I bought condoms at some point or whatever, or I dropped my lipstick or I don't know. You know, they can figure out who I am and then what I buy. And that's, that, that is important for them. And this is why everybody pushes you. It's not, a, it's not a conspiracy. It's just, it's good for everybody. The question is, is it good for you? Um, and in a story um, that I found really nice, so I was Googling about, about, I was Googling around about this and then I found a story on uh, Fast Company and uh, from, from last year, I think. And they were they were writing about this whole, whole problem, how um, companies, uh, payment providers, everybody wants to collect this financial data and how this is like the new thing. Oh, it's actually, this story is from this month. Wow, it's actually, I didn't know that. It's from last week. Whew. Okay. Um, so it's probably prompted by the um, by the plaid thing, but you know. So they they write. We've become accustomed to the grim fact that nearly every major advertiser, website, and personal device maker collects and monitors users' data to some extent. <sighs> Become accustomed to well, speak for yourself. I, I haven't become accustomed to that. Some do it for their own purposes. 
Others do it in the service of various algorithmic spy masters, such as Facebook and Google, which analyze vast arrays of personal information from social media likes to GPS locations to surf up relevant ads. But to understand shopping behavior with certainty, you need credit card data. Over the past decade, consumer purchases have quietly become one of the most sought-after and lucrative data sets used by Wall Street and Madison Avenue, Madison Avenue being the um, advertising industry, alike to infer shoppers' tastes, budgets, and plans. These transactions have given rise to a complex data selling ecosystem. At the heart of it are credit card processing networks, including Visa, American Express, and MasterCard, the latter of which took in $4.1 billion in 2019, a quarter of its annual revenue from leveraging its warehouse of transaction data for services that include marketing analytics as well as reward programs and fraud detection. Then there are the banks, retailers, payment processors, and software companies that empower online transactions. Few disclose their methods. Some actively obfuscate their work. We just talked about that. All vow that personal data is anonymized and aggregated and therefore secure. Everybody, you know, everybody's doing it because everybody wants you to pay digitally so they can do that. But let that sink in. MasterCard makes a quarter of its revenue, a quarter of its revenue from analyzing payment data. I mean, did you know that? I didn't know that. I, you know, <laughs> it wasn't that long ago that you paid them to have a credit. You actually paid them. You paid them so that they spied on you. <laughs> Cracks me up. So they, the story, they, they write about the, the, the general, um, this general process and um, industry behind collecting this kind of data which is a bit depressing and calls for a second beer to be honest okay um Companies have been tapping into transaction data to sell us more things as early as the 1990s. When credit card giants such as American Express, some of you probably weren't alive. <laughs> uh, when credit card giants such as American Express analyzed purchases to tailor special offers to cardholders. Marketers with more limited vantage points, meanwhile, pooled the data from their own cash registers to get a better view of their consumers. The landscape changed dramatically when fintech startups came knocking a decade later. Banks were at first wary of sharing data and working with them, largely because of the 1999, so this is US-based again, of course, uh, largely because of the 1999 Graham-Leach-Billy Act, which mandates penalties on financial institutions that put customer data, including names, birthdays, addresses, and personal identifiable information at risk. Now, this is the great thing. Banks in every country, pretty much, you're probably listening from, are very heavily regulated. This is always a thing, um, you know, when, when I, 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 little, little aside here. I don't like Elon Musk, and one of the, I've never liked Elon Musk, and one of the reasons is he invented PayPal, and people are like, ah, Elon Musk is a genius. He's well invented, but you know he was part of creating PayPal, and ah, Elon Musk is a genius. PayPal, you know, how would you pay online with PayPal? And you know, I use you, you know, for support of this podcast, I use PayPal. You, you can't get around PayPal, but 
the insidious and evil thing about PayPal that most people don't realize is that PayPal PayPal is is essentially a bank. I mean, banks do more things than financial transactions, but that is kind of their backbone thing. Now, PayPal is a bank, but it's not really a bank. It's not regulated as a bank. I mean, they changed this, you know, in, in recent years, and especially with, like, laws about money laundering. Yes, yes, there's more and more regulations, but banks still a lot more heavily re regulated than PayPal. And PayPal is one of the first companies that started this. Like, this is when, you know, this is, this is why fintech companies became big. And so you can thank Elon Musk for this thing. Now we have banks that were basically left behind and didn't all do all the cool app things because they were regulated. And people actually looked like at what they did with, the, with people's data. And now you just have a whole different industry which does the same thing just digitally but just isn't a bank, largely. So they're not, they're not regulated like that. So now we have the Wild West again. Yoo-hoo! Thanks, Elon. <sighs> um, right. So, you know, they, they, the banks were afraid because of this uh, Graham Leach Billy Act uh, to share this information because they get penalized if they do something wrong. To solve this, the startups implemented a sophisticated system that erases personal details and replaces them because they want that details of banks, right? They would still want that, needed that erases personal details and replaces them with randomly generated pseudonyms that act like ID codes. They are unintelligible on their own, but can later be matched up with individual customer files. You know, pseudo-anonymization. This substitution system, also known as tokenization, is now standard. Chip cards, contactless payment systems such as Apple Pay, online payment methods, and other internet banking technologies rely on it to connect with one another. They even form daisy chains. If an e-commerce app needs to accept credit cards, it uses software provided by, by a payment processor like Stripe. If a financial services app such as Acorns wants to link to customers' bank accounts, it can use an API from Plaid, which automates logins. If a wealth management app wants to give users a dashboard view of their credit card savings and investment accounts, it can use software from a company called Yodly. I'd never heard of before I researched all this as well, but you know, the more you know. Today, any American who has bought something online has almost certainly had their data passed along, it's probably the same in Europe, um, by their credit card company and middleware startups. And some of those middlemen profit from what they see by selling information to marketers, hedge funds, and other brokers. So it's always like, you know, Platt says, oh, we don't sell your data, but then they like, sell pseudonymized stuff. Or like, this bank says, we don't sell your data. No, no, no. We give it to a company that we own that then sells that. It's, it's always something like that. And of course, this anonymization, this tokenization doesn't work because the story uh, now gets to the main point. Uh, tokenization, quote, effectively created a loophole, says Ives Alexander de Montoya, who heads the Computational Privacy Group at Imperial College London and who has advised the European Union on privacy issues. By, or as you would probably say, oh, privacy issues. By removing names and other details, companies can argue that it's not personal data, it's anonymized, he says. 
but it isn't so anonymous. In 2015, the Montoya and colleagues at MIT took a data set containing three months' worth of credit card transactions. By the way, sorry for bumping the microphone. I keep doing that. Um, took a set took a set containing three months' worth of credit card transactions by 1.1 million unnamed people and found that 90% of the time they could identify an individual they knew if they knew the rough details, the day and the shop of four of that person's purchases. So they took, let's just recap that, uh, they took a set containing three months' worth of credit card transactions by 1.1 million unnamed people. And if they knew the day and the shop of four of one person's purchases, they could identify the individual. In other words, a combination of a few receipts, tweets, and Instagram posts of you dining out is enough to re reveal your other purchases. So basically, it's like an attack on... It's almost like a old school like cryptography attack, like on a on a, you know, um, I'm currently reading a book on the uh, German, uh, well on the U-boat U-boat war in World War Two, and um, I read something about you know the code breakers at Bletchley Park and how they're like breaking Enigma, right? And they always needed something called a crib, which is like when somebody fucked up. So somebody at the at the Wehrmacht or at the uh, the, the Kriegsmarine in this case. Um, they fucked up. They did some, you know, um, before they sent an actual message, they did some in, in initialization, some check, and, you know, they didn't use the same procedures they would use for the message. And so they spilled out some information, and you can use that to attack the cipher and break the cipher. And this is kind of the same thing, right? You have, you have all these people, you don't know who they are, but you can, with big data analysis and, you know, with just number crunching, you can just figure out that if, if you can identify one purchase because somebody posted something about that on Twitter or else or, like, on their Venmo stream or whatever, um, you can identify a few of their purchases and then you know who that person is. And from then onwards, you know their, their token, their ID or whatever it's called, right? And from then on, um, you can identify them. Which goes back to the point. It's like this is like location data, right? You can. There's almost no way to to store this security. There's always if you just attack it enough and you have enough data. For example, you know, you'd think like the people who wanted to know this kind of stuff, if they, you know, Facebook, Google, they have so much information about you that they can probably just it's just trivial for them. All of this is happening under a veil of secrecy. Credit card companies may acknowledge that they make money from analyzing transactions, but they are vague about what they actually share. So as you can see, this whole plat is just is just part of the problem. And this also explains why nobody wants you to pay in cash, because none of this works if you pay in cash. And just a little sermon before I finish this topic. But I can, I mean, I'm... You probably think, oh yeah, Fab's gone crazy, but I, I can see a point. You know, if you look at, let me, let me, I'm old fart here, like I'm 36, right? Let me, let me go. The young people these days, you know, they're, they're paying everything on the apps. They're paying with the apps. They don't use cash. It's kind of like. Um, <laughs> cracks me up so um i use the value for value model on um on this podcast as you know which um was pioneered by the no agenda podcast and it's kind of a way to um 
you know, ask for contributions to the podcast, you, you know, you kind of say, um, the thing I always do, like the, the, the basis of the model is if you derive value from the show, you learn something right now. Maybe you learn something about plaid, about payment processes. You know, maybe that's worth something to you. Maybe it's worth as much as a coffee. Maybe it's $2. Maybe it's worth more. Maybe you're like, oh man, I just saved my privacy and my privacy is worth $50, right? And so the, the system works by by giving that back, by giving that back to the guy who makes the podcast. In, in this case, it's me. You know, in case of no agenda, it'd be Adam Curry and John C. Dvorak. Um, and but they don't like Patreon. They don't use Patreon. I use Patreon because even though you know I know there's privacy issues and it's a provider, and you know it's kind of like a middleman. It's kind of like Plaid. <laughs> it's not quite as bad, I think. But you know, I, I see the problems, and I've I've just told you I don't like PayPal, and I use that. But they always say, um, you know, oh, the best thing for us would be just if you just send us a check. And then they say, what well, sending a check is great, right? Um, yeah, it's it's very it's almost like cash. You could almost you could rather you know, could also send cash. Um, but a check is is a bit more secure, obviously. You know, it's not that easy to uh, you know to cash that check uh, because you know it's it it has the person. It's you know it's, it's easier. To, it's harder to steal. Um, but that always cracks me up because I've never used a check. I was born in 1983. I know what a check looks like. I can very vague memories of like when I was six, when my dad had a checkbook and he would, and it was like, he would never use it in Germany. I have no known memories in my life from people using checks in Germany. Back in the day, you'd use cash or use credit cards. Um, but sometimes, especially this was always on holiday. And it's always like they wouldn't take credit cards or something. My dad would write a check and he would put out his checkbook and he'd fill it out there with a fountain pen or something, right? And then he'd rip it off and he'd give it to the guy. But I've never done that. I've never filled out a check in my life. I wouldn't know how, where to start. I wouldn't know if my bank actually provides that service. I, 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 had, to, like, I had to do a manual bank transfer the other day where i had to go to well the other day the other week i had to go to the bank and get like one of these printout things and i fill it out and i had to check i was like um can you give me one of these and the teller was like yeah of course because you know old ladies do that all the time i was like I've, i haven't done that in the last 20 years i don't know how this works and i filled it out wrong and i had to go back like can you give me another one i filled this out wrong i put my name where the number is supposed to go and it's all fucking so that's what I'm saying. I can because of that because I am 36 and I've never seen a check and I've never used it. Well, never seen. I've never used a check in my life. I know that people who are younger, um, for them, it's completely natural. Of course, their payment system is a social network. Of course, it is. And the thing is, like we can, you know, we here on a privacy podcast, and we're all fat, probably. Some of you are probably a bit older than me, and we're like, how could they? But the thing is. Things change, right? And I can see a future. I can, I, I can see, I can see that. I, I cannot, I cannot envision a future without cars. Right? When they go like, "Oh, we get rid of all cars by 2035 in Europe or whatever the current plan is," I'm like, "That's like never gonna happen." I can't, I can't see that. I, I, like, I, I can't, I can't envision that. I can easily envision a. Um, a future in Germany without cash. And that's a problem. Because cash is the only way we have 
where all of this that I just talked about for what an hour um, doesn't apply. That gets you out of all of that. It has other problems. You know, you have coins and change. And I was always getting into fights uh, when I when I worked at Heiser with my colleagues there. They're like, oh, I can't wait till they get rid of cash. And I'm like, what? Are you insane? And this was even before I was like hardcore into privacy. I mean, back in the day, I was like, for a long time, I was like, you know, I'm a, I have this duality when it comes to this topic because I'm a, I'm a very public person. I live a lot of my life on the internet. If you follow me on Twitter, um, if you read my blog, fab.industries, uh, you can, um, you, you know, you, you learn a lot about my life. So I'm, I'm in one way, I'm not a, not a very private person. Um, you know, that still doesn't mean I don't value my privacy if I want it, right? For me, that's a choice. I choice My choice is to live my life in a relatively public way. For me, that always came with being a journalist. I think if you're a journalist, you are a public person. Um, you know, it depends on how successful you are. But, you know, when I started doing a podcast, I talk about my private life on my podcast. You know, I'm telling you that I'm my parents' place right now. Um, so, for, But for me, that is a choice. I want that... Um, I want to have that choice, and especially I know that I'm not n normal, so to speak. You know, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a. I don't want to speak for other people. A lot of people are a lot more private, and I feel like it should be your personal choice. And that's why I see stuff like that when, when you know, when you, when we're talking about let's get rid of all cash, I find that unresponsible. Um, because I would always say to these colleagues, I would say to them, well, I'm okay with enabling you to not use cash. But we can never get to a point where that is not acceptable, right? Where you have places where they don't have cash. Well, we can get to that point. I can see that coming. It's it's coming. It, it will be coming. That's, that's why I call the war on cash. Um, but it will be to all of our detriment because all of this trapping, tracking is happening. And we are tracked everywhere. We're tracked on the internet. More of our lives is on the internet. And now, with stuff like that, even your offline life is being tracked. Anyway, let's get off the soapbox. I've, I've uh, rambled on about that for long enough. That was uh, my deep dive into Plaid, a topic I wanted to talk about for literally months now, and I've finally gotten, gotten it done. Next time, we're probably going to talk about some coronavirus topics again. I don't know. We'll see. I don't even know when the next show will be. It will, at the latest, be next Wednesday. <laughs> I can't do that much. Um, but before, don't turn it off yet. Don't don't go away. Um, still have the feedback uh, section to go through. And in today's feedback section, we will be. Um, taking a left turn from what we've just talked about, we'll, this will be some inside baseball. We're some, talking some meta stuff now because I had some comments about um, some recent changes I did to the infrastructure of like how the podcast is hosted in the website, and I got two questions about that, and I thought I'll I'll answer them this week because uh, they came in very quickly, and it sounds like people are genuinely. I know I know I've got a lot of geeks listening to the show. And they're also interested in infrastructure stuff. And um, so let's first uh, talk about an email I received from Ron, who's a longtime listener. 
Um, listen back in the day when I was producing Linux Outlaws. So uh, long time ago, um, and he's been with me all the way, it seems. Um, and Ron says, I thought I heard that you were moving your website to a different host because Go GoDaddy was taking over the former. I'm wondering if you could tell me if there are reasons that I should not use GoDaddy and if so, uh, and so if you can suggest a few inexpensive alternatives. Okay. First off, what happened is GoDaddy has bought WebFaction, I think this almost three years ago. Uh, I was very happy with WebFaction as a web host, as a very easy um, way to host some websites. I do have root servers. You know, I have my own servers. I have all of that. But I appreciate to have an easy web hoster where I can just throw up stuff. And I'm a guy who, you know, who buys a lot of domains. And I'm I'm a guy who has a lot of projects. And, and I throw things at the wall and I see if they stick and then they go away. Some st Some stuff stays. And I like doing that. So I, I, I really like WebFaction for that. Um, back in the day on Linux Outlaws, uh, Dan originally, uh, my, my co-host back in the day, good friend of mine, Dan Lynch, um, he recommended WebFaction to me and I've been using it ever since. Now they were, you know, that's almost three years ago, I think, they were bought by GoDaddy. And that day I vowed to get away from WebFaction is just I still have an account there. I still have moved all my all my stuff. So it's just take takes ages. Because I'm busy. I've got other things to do. But anyway, um why don't I like GoDaddy? First off I want to tell tell you're saying um uh so so Ron uh, was saying um I was wondering if you could tell me if there are uh reasons I should not use GoDaddy. No, I won't because I'm not telling you to use anything or not use it. It's, it's completely your decision. If you're happy with GoDaddy, stay with GoDaddy. I will tell you why I switched away from a hoster that got bought by the GoDaddy and I've never been a, you know, before that was never a GoDaddy customer. But that is my personal opinion completely and that might not apply to you at all or anybody else who's listening. But you ask, so I'm going to answer. Um, I don't like GoDaddy. I've never liked them. Actually, on if you listen to Linux Outlaws back in the day, um, Dan and me, <laughs> the, the first ever, I would say, um, serious sponsorship offer we we uh, received was from GoDaddy. Oh, that was a, that sounded like a Harley. I didn't know if you could hear that. But um, yeah, so the first ever serious sponsorship um, offer we ever got was from GoDaddy. And we politely declined. And that had two reasons. Uh, one, one was we didn't really need sponsorship. Um, I was doing it podcasting as a hobby. And I had another job. And there were tax implications. I really didn't want to make money off it. And I guess Dan was kind of the same. Or like he didn't really, you know, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't much. It wasn't enough money to live off, right? So it was like a little bit. It's just then you have tax hassles, and there's like a point of, there's like this point of diminishing returns where, like, for a hundred, hundred euros a, a a month, let's say, or I don't know, I can't remember how much it was, but like, you know, you don't want to if you can't live off it. There's like, yeah, you have a bit of money, and it helps with the hosting cost, but it's like you have then you have to sort of all this tax stuff, especially in Germany, but you know. Wasn't worth it, and um, that was the one one fact. And the other one was that we both never liked GoDaddy. I never liked GoDaddy. It, for me, it starts with their logo. They have this whole. They have a logo that looks like somebody has shit 
on a on a piece of paper and use that as a painted a green and use that as a logo like that's not a logo that's like that wouldn't even be my placeholder logo that it's like it's horrible um then i always had like back in the day had these super bowl ads like with the chicks i mean don't get me wrong i like women <laughs> and i like scantily clad women but you know you can have scantily clad women in a class in a class you know with class stylish in a in a you know in a in a classy way or you can have it in a cheap way that looks like you just casted them out of a nightclub and that was always like the go daddy thing right i mean that can be your brand right and if you're john mcafee and you're crazy or you want to portray that you're crazy that's a good brand to have if you're the wwe that's a good brand to have do i want that from a host or like if you're playboy do i want that from a hosting company nah not really um you know, lots of people don't like GoDaddy because of the founder, because like he shoots big animals. I have no problem with that. Um, well, I. God, no. Let, let, okay, let's let's be more nuanced here. I, I I don't like people who shoot endangered animals. It's just dumb. Don't shoot any animals. That'll they'll just we don't want that. I've got nothing with hunting. I I've got no problem with trophy hunting or with hunting in general, but just don't shoot endangered fucking animals. You know, just shoot something else. There's there's Go to Australia and shoot rabbits or something. I mean, that's not as great as a lion or whatever. But a giraffe? Who wants, like, who wants to shoot a giraffe? Things are ridiculous. And it's not even... Spo- I mean, it's just... I never liked the guy. I never liked the guy. I never liked the company. It's just a personal personal thing. I hope that answered your question. I don't... Um, so I actually looked around. So the other part of the question, where could you switch to? I don't know. Um, people said Digital Ocean... Uh, but then that's not really an alter. I don't know. It's like that's like this more advanced run. I'd say if you if you like GoDaddy, if you like the service, if you never had any problems with them, if you if you don't mind, if you don't have any, you know, like me, you, you don't have problems with the logo or the the chicks in the Super Bowl commercials that were like ten years ago. <laughs> you know, use it. I don't. I don't. I don't judge. Now, uh, something that's a bit more complicated, Martin wrote me a German email. I'm going to paraphrase this a bit. And he said, um, so I switched to Netlify. I, I linked once again, I wrote a blog post because I switched my blog to Netlify. And if you want more details, I explain it in there. Um, but he basically said, I wouldn't have to have to switch Netlify to publish my Hugo blog from GitHub. I said, I liked the, the process. I explained in the previous show how, you know, how I, how I like Hugo to make websites and how I like to put that in a Git repository anyway. And then I just push, push it to GitHub. And then, you know, Netlify has the thing where you, you know, authenticate it with GitHub and then they take, you know, they have an infrastructure, they run Hugo. It generates a site, they copy that to a CDN, and it just gets hosted automatically. And Martin's like, you don't have to do that. You can use GitHub Actions to compile a page, and then you can top deploy it via SFTP to a hoster, or you could even GitLab can do that automatically and host it on GitLab pages, and I put link in the show notes in case you're interested in that. But, first off, yes, I'm aware you can do all that. But that's not what I was looking for. I want I 
I wanted a hosting company. I don't want to deploy this with with SFTP because then I would see I need a web hoster then, right? I need to find another web hoster. With Netlify, I found a web hoster that I thought was cool. Yeah, it's a San Francisco startup, which Martin, they say, oh, they're hipsters or whatever. Just a little bit of a dig at. I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not offended. I'm, I'm you know, fair, fair play. Um, but um, I just, they just do exactly what I want. And they're not very expensive and they're easy to, they're easy to use. Um, and that, that's exactly, they do exactly what I want. They have features that I want. So, you know, if I do that and then I have a web host and then I, so I, I do want some basic statistics about my uh, visitors to the blog. I don't want to track anybody. I just basically want to see, are people still reading this fucking, you know, I'm still hitting the website. Am I doing this for 10 people? Right, that's that's what I want to see. I want some ra random not not random some some general far level view and i want that i don't want to track anybody so i want that to be gdpr compliant and netrify has like the service you can pay for them like it's part of the service it's like an add-on and it does that and it's gdpr compliant it's perfect it's exactly what i need this is exactly what i needed that's why i chose it and it's easy um and that gets me into another thing. So rant incoming. So if you don't want rants, if you don't want any of this, if you if you learned any anything you wanted, uh, by all means turn off the podcast now. But if you like rants and if you want to maybe learn something generally about podcasters and podcasting, keep listening, and I'll have another sip of beer. Okay, so let's get go to back in the day for Linux outlaws, right? I've been now doing podcasts for. 13 years, I think. And here's the thing. So you do a podcast on a tech topic and you do anything. Let's take a let's take a Linux outlaws uh kind of let's go away from the um from the Netlify and the hosting problem. Let's take let's take a Linux outlaws kind of problem here. So you're on you're on the show and you just um you I'm talking to Dan about like I'm using Ubuntu, let's say, and I had a problem with Ubuntu. And I'm like, oh, this pisses me off, right? In Ubuntu, when you do this, and then that breaks, <laughs> and then I fucking hate that. And then goes, oh, yeah, that's horrible. I, I use Ubuntu as well, and that's I hate that, right? You do that on a podcast. In the next three days, you get 50 to 100 emails, and I shit you not, from all kinds of Linux nerds that are lovely and listen to, my, listen to the podcast, but they're still nerds, who are like... Ah, you know, you shouldn't use Ubuntu. Ubuntu is horrible. Uh, you know, you uh, you do realize that Fedora does this a lot better, and you have this a lot of time. And I just want to say something here, and this is not a dick on Martin uh, specifically, but I wanna I wanna say this. I keep, I think I said this several times in LO, and I think it's it's worth saying it here because I'm not the only one. You listen to podcasts, especially podcasts that have a tech audience, and this happens all the time. Everybody deals with this. You hear podcasters rant about this at least <laughs> once a year, right? Um, somebody does a podcast and he's found a solution that he likes, right? And he tells you about that solution. Think about that when you write feedback. I'm not saying don't write me any feedback. I'm not saying, Martin, don't write me that. That's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I love feedback. I love criticism. It's all good. I'm just saying generally. You send that feedback. You think it, like this guy just found something they really like and they tell you about it. 
Like, how in the earth is your first reaction you realize that you can do that with service X, Y, Z? The guy is really happy that he found a solution that works for him. Why would you do that? Why would you write that feedback? I don't get it. Like, so it's not bad that Martin wrote me this. I mean, I could have, maybe I didn't know. Well, I actually knew that you could do that with GitHub because before I looked at Hugo, um, I looked at, um, was it Jekyll? Which is like the thing that's, it's completely built. Like if you use uh, GitHub pages, it actually uses it automatically and you can all do all that. And I knew that GitLab could, oh, no, I didn't know that GitLab could do that. So I learned something, that's good. But the thing is like, <laughs> you completely misunderstood what I was doing there. I'm not like, that's 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 the other part. That's that's the part maybe like I, I had a I had this problem very often on Linux Outlaws, um, where people don't understand that sometimes. I mean, I've I've started this podcast with saying this is a podcast for pragmatic. I mean, and it's for anybody, but like my viewpoint is like for a pr pragmatic kind of user. And sometimes I'm just very pragmatic, right? Sometimes I am okay with paying some hipsters in San Francisco to provide a service that does what I want. I could build this myself. I know I could I could have a root server. I have a root server. I could build this all with Docker. I know what they're doing. It's just a bit of shell scripts and some Docker containers, right? I can do that. I can probably do it with a shell script. I did it before. Like bef before I switched here for a while, I actually had the, the website on my root server and I, I was actually doing that. I was compiling Hugo on there and I had, I think I had Git on there. Well, I didn't automate it from a Git convert. That I had other reasons. I could have done that. I mean, I know how that worked. That's that's not the point. Sometimes people don't want that. But maybe Martin, you already just wanted to tell me. It's, Martin, it's not a dick at you. I just wanted to make this point. Um, I get I, I get this often. And sometimes you get these emails where you think, like, I'm not saying Martin's emails like that, but it just reminded me of emails I gotten in the past, which is this knee-jerk reaction. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, of course Ubuntu shit like that. Why are you using Ubuntu? You should be using Fedora. You're like, no, there's a reason this guy is using Ubuntu, whatever. And maybe you can't, you know, maybe you can't identify with that. <laughs> but, you know, try to put yourself into the other person's shoes, at least. Ah! Anyway, <laughs> that was my rant. Um, please don't take this the wrong way. I love when people write me. Um, I, I, you know, I love that Martin wrote me. And, you know, I read out his, you know, I didn't read it out because it was in German, but, you know, I addressed it on the show because I thought it was important. And I, you know, talked to you about this because I think this is an important point. Um, so you can tell that I take the feedback seriously. Um, so if you want to send me some feedback, contact links are, details are in the show notes. There's a link there, privatecitizen.press. And maybe you'll be, you'll be lucky and I'll rant about your feedback on the show. <laughs> Well, and that's it for this episode. Um, as I mentioned before, this podcast is under the value for value model. Um, I've explained it before, so I don't have to do it again. I use Patreon, so you can become a supporter and support the show via Patreon, or you can send me money uh, via PayPal, Elon Musk's evil invention, producers at fab.industries, producers at fab.industries, fab.industries just my blog that's my email uh situated that's what that email address and um if you go 
truth. So, it, so if you go to the contact link, it actually on the on private citizen press, it actually sends you to fab.industry/contact, and there are many contact uh, possibilities on there. Uh, emails, PGP. I have a whistleblower contact form, um, but there's also a postal address on there. So, I mean, if you want to send me cash because you heard I like cash, or if you indeed want to send me a check and want to see me fret, I will probably talk, if anybody sends me a check, I will have to figure out how to cash it. (laughs) And that'll be a story. I'll probably blog about it, and I'll probably talk about it on the show. So if you want to try that, you can do that. This uh, postal address is in there. Um, I don't know. Is that all you need for a check? I don't even know. See, I don't, I don't have a fucking idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's it. So you can help out. And I would like to thank everybody who did. And this first includes the composer and uh, the guy who recorded the theme song of this podcast called Acoustic Roots. And the guy's called Raul Cabezali. Uh, and I licensed this song from him. And I still want to give him credit because it's a great song. And even though I'd pro- I think I don't have to, but I want to, uh, I'm also thankful to Bytemark, who are a great hosting company from the UK, bytemark.co.uk. They provide cloud hosting servers. Uh, they provide me with two root servers that I uh, personally installed and run the infrastructure on that gives you um, the audio files. If you don't know the podcast, um, that's where they come from, and I don't have to pay for that, and that is great. And it helps me out massively. And it also proves that I can do that if I want. I can administer root servers. But mostly I don't do it because I'm sitting here producing podcasts for you, right? If I <laughs> if I was like the people are writing, oh, you can do this all by hand, you can do this. Yeah, I can. I can do that or I can give you a podcast episode. <laughs> and then there are lots of people who actually support this podcast. Uh, most of them on Patreon, uh, some via PayPal. And I would like to thank all of them. So the people who... Have, who are keeping this show on the air and made it possible for me to get to episode number 20 and have supported episode 20 are Niall Donegan, Michael Mullen Jensen, Jonathan M. Hathy, Georges Walther, Dave, Eric G. Test, Butterbeans, Kai Sears, Mark Holland, Steve Hose, Shelby Coover, Fadi Mansour, Vlad, I don't know if it's the Impaler, but uh, it just says Vlad. <laughs> Matt Jellerman, Joe Poser, Jackie Plage, 1I11G, IKN, Dave Amrish, Dirk Didi, David Potter, Vitautus Sadowskis, Ricky M, Drive Zero, Mika, Jonathan Edwards, Barry Williams, Sylvia Vulcan, SJ, Daniel B., and Bennett Piata. Thanks to all of you. Thanks for keeping the show on the air. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing in. And that's it. Fab out. See you further on up the road. <laughs>